Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 4, Side 1. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Oneida, located at Whitesboro near Utica, was not the first college to admit Negroes. In August 1826 of the year in which Oneida was founded, Amherst graduated Edward Jones, and two weeks later, Bowdoin conferred a degree upon John B. Rossworm. But these were one-shot affairs, hardly to be compared with Oneida's enrollment of six Negroes in 1836. Negroes were attracted to Oneida because it was a manual labor school, one which combined physical effort with mental effort. It thus had a practical aspect important to job-conscious Negroes, many of their improvement societies bearing in their titles the words mechanic arts. Oneida further attracted Negroes because it was strongly abolitionist, its president, Beriah Green, was elected president of the American Anti-Slavery Society at its first meeting in December 1833. Six months earlier, students at Oneida had organized the first of the new type abolitionist societies in New York. Theodore D. Weld spent three formative years at Oneida, one of its many dedicated abolitionist alumni. Oneida's influence spread westward many of its students enrolling at Lane Seminary in Cincinnati and at Oberlin. The latter particularly bore a strong abolitionist stamp, the trustees having voted, although by the narrowest of margins, to encourage Negroes to enroll. This was deemed especially venturesome inasmuch as Oberlin, truly a pioneer, also took the lead in admitting women. Again and again the charge was made that we intended to encourage marriage between colored and white students and even compel them to marry, wrote the noted theologian evangelist Charles G. Finney. True to her antecedents, Oberlin remained liberal. Abolitionist lecturers were welcomed to her halls, and runaway slaves found her campus a sanctuary. At a public meeting in August 1842, President Asa Mahan stated that the connection of Negroes with the college had been a source of pleasure to the officers. The AME clergyman, J.M. Brown, writing on June 8, 1844, observed that there was no place in the United States where a Negro might get an education as cheap as he can at Oberlin and at the same time be respected as a man. The college expelled a white student for calling a colored man a black nigger, even though the student was, in the words of Professor Amasa Walker, a very consequential young man from a rich and respected family. Of the 245 Negroes who attended Oberlin before the Civil War, 3% of the total, apparently not one lodged a formal complaint of discriminatory treatment by faculty or fellow students. 
For all its liberalism, Oberlin was not the first college to appoint a Negro to its faculty. This pioneering step was taken by New York Central College, founded in 1849 at McGrawville, New York, by the American Baptist Free Missionary Society. Pledged to the morality of anti-slavery, the coeducational school welcomed Negroes as students and as teachers. During its dozen years of existence, three Negroes served successively as professor of Belle Lettres. Charles L. Reason, who left for Philadelphia in 1852 to become principal of the Institute for Colored Youth, William G. Allen, product of Oneida College, who left somewhat precipitously after marrying a white student, and George B. Vachon, an Oberlin graduate. At the commencement exercises in June 1858, one of the speakers was black John B. Reeve, a graduating senior. Abolitionists, white or black, found Central College a haven. Frederick Douglass came to the campus in July 1852 for a series of four lectures. William C. Nell put his stamp of approval on the school, hailing it for doing a mighty work in uprooting prejudice. But praise from the faithful, however gratifying, did not solve the college's chronic financial troubles. In 1858, the trustees, with bankruptcy imminent, prevailed upon Garrett Smith to buy the land and buildings. Smith attempted to persuade J. McCune Smith to accept the presidency, but the latter demurred, doubtless sensing that the college's day was done. By then, however, the loss of Central College could be more easily borne. There had been an increase in the list of colleges and professional schools that would accept a Negro and the day was passing when the racially restrictive policies in American higher education would force a J. McCune Smith to enroll at Glasgow or an Alexander Crummel to turn to Oxford. Chapter 6. Duet with John Bull Slavery in America is not a domestic question. It is a question for all mankind. J. W. C. Pennington, London, 1843 it was a summer afternoon in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in 1859, but not just any summer afternoon. It was August 1st, a day of celebration to Negroes in the North. For it was on August 1st, 1834, that an act of the British Parliament decreeing an end to slavery in the British West Indies went into effect. Hence, the Harrisburg celebration in 1859 by Negroes was in line with the best in abolitionist tradition. Augmented by visitors from Philadelphia and Baltimore, a procession formed at the head of Harrisburg's main street to march through the town to a picnic grove. The Grand Marshal and his aides, wearing blue sashes decorated by wreaths, led the way on horseback. Then came a color-bearer, a few paces in front of the Henry Highland Garnet guards, who were carrying new muskets and wearing gray coats and pants, fatigue caps, and white belts. In uniform scarcely less resplendent, marched the Philadelphia Brass Band. Sandwiched between the Good Samaritan Lodge of the Daughters of Temperance and the flag-bearing, music-making Oddfellows were the three speakers of the day, proceeding in a dignified stroll. Bringing up the uniformed rear were the Carlisle and Toussaint Louverture clubs, followed by the throng of spectators turned paraders and participants. At the Grove, the formal program proceeded, with a band playing and the choir singing, followed by prayers. 
Now it was the turn of the speakers of the day. Jacob C. White, Jr., Charles W. Gardner, a Harrisburg clergyman, and Henry Highland Garnet. Dinner followed with a number of whites eating and drinking with everyone else. One could not tarry too long at the table, lest he be late for the music concert scheduled from 8 to 10 o'clock at Brant's Hall back in town. After the concert, the celebrators went to the Walnut Street Exchange for the day's finale, the Grand Emancipation Ball. Thus did a group of Americans commemorate a day not on their country's calendar of holidays, but an import from across the Atlantic. Thus did a group of Negroes hail Britannia, linking her past to their future. The agitation against slavery in antebellum America was not solely a domestic phenomenon. In early Victorian England, the humanitarian impulse was strong, one of its manifestations being a deep hostility to slavery. Rooted in religion and philanthropy, British abolitionism was tinged with the current romantic spirit in literature. To the poets and the essayists, the watchword was freedom, and this sentiment embraced the black people in bonds. If they were savage, they would need only to be freed, and since they were unspoiled and uncorrupt, they would soon become noble. These impulses, religious, philanthropic, and literary, bore substantial fruit. An act of Parliament in 1833 abolished slavery in the colonies. Six years later, the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society was formed, its purpose to strike at slavery wherever it existed. The American anti-slavery movement owed much in inspiration and support from reformers in Great Britain. But if America received much, she brought something in return. To the anti-slavery cause in England during the 25 years before the Civil War, Negro abolitionists made a distinctive contribution. During this period, a procession of black reformers crossed the Atlantic to be lionized in London, Edinburgh, and Dublin. The full effect of their influence would be felt during the Civil War, when the abolitionized sentiment of the British rank and file became a factor in preventing Her Majesty's government from extending diplomatic recognition to the slaveholding Confederate states. American abolitionists did not share the coolness toward John Bull felt by many of their countrymen. Abolitionists were quick to forget the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 and to focus their admiring attention on Britain's work in abolishing the African slave trade and finally, in 1833, in decreeing an end to slavery in the British West Indies. The day that this parliamentary act went into effect was August 1, 1834. As a result, the 1st of August became a revered entry in the abolitionist calendar, a day to commemorate. Negroes and abolitionists celebrated West India Emancipation Day because they did not have much to choose from. A law abolishing the foreign slave trade went into effect on January 1, 1808, and Negroes in New York took due note of the occasion. On that day they gathered to listen to orator Peter Williams describe the rape of Africa, the horrors of the slave trade, and the noble efforts of John Woolman, Anthony Benezet, and William Wilberforce. The following year, New York Negroes held three celebrations of the abolition of the foreign slave trade. At the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the speaker was Henry Sipkins, whose address was reminiscent of Peter Williams in tone, if inferior in literary expression.
Williams himself attended the exercises sponsored by the New York African Society for Mutual Relief, where he read a brace of original poems and listened to the orator of the day, William Hamilton. The third observance was the work of the Wilberforce Philanthropic Association with Joseph Sidney as orator. These 18-9 celebrations were the high point. Within three years, the January 1st observances would be discontinued, for by then Negroes had unhappily taken note that the law prohibiting the foreign slave trade had become almost a dead letter, being blatantly flouted. Beginning in 1827, Negroes in New York celebrated July 4th for a few years. In 1799, the state legislature had passed a Gradual Emancipation Act covering the slaves born after that year. A law passed in 1817 extended slave emancipation to cover those born before July 4, 1799, stipulating that they were to become free as of July 4, 1827. With the approach of the day for the almost complete extinction of slavery in the state, Negroes made plans to celebrate. Meeting at the Mutual Relief Hall in New York in mid-April 1827, a group headed by William Hamilton and Thomas L. Jennings recommended that all Negro churches in the city hold services of prayer and thanksgiving on July 4th. The largest July 4th celebration in the city took place at the African Zion Church, its walls adorned with banners of the participating societies and with pictures of Thomas Clarkson, the English abolitionist, along with those of John Jay and Daniel D. Tompkins, former governors who had pushed emancipation measures. A group of original hymns served as a prelude to William Hamilton's oration. This day we stand redeemed from a bitter thraldom, ran one of the sentences in a stirring address that would soon be printed for sale at twelve and a half cents per copy. Since the 4th of July was a national holiday, most Negroes throughout the state preferred to postpone the emancipation celebration until the following day. This included New York City blacks, who on July 5th held a parade through the downtown streets en route to Zion Church. The procession was led by Grand Marshal Samuel Hardenberg, his cocked hat vying with his drawn sword for attention. Hardenberg's mounted aides dashed up and down the line of some 4,000 marchers. At the city hall, the Grand Marshal saluted the mayor to a roar of cheers. Indeed, the meeting at Zion Church with an oration by John Mitchell was something of an anticlimax. Albany Negroes had begun preparing for their celebration nearly four months in advance. Gathering at the African Meeting House in late March, they had appointed a committee of twelve, headed by Lewis Topp, to make all arrangements. On July 5th, the celebrants gathered at the African Baptist Church, whose pastor, Nathaniel Paul, was the chief speaker. All paid tribute to a host of reformers and political personages, English and American, living and dead. His denunciation of the foreign slave trade took on the note of apostrophe typical of the times. Tell me, ye mighty waters, why did ye sustain the ponderous load of misery? Or speak, ye winds, and say why it was that ye executed your office to waft them onward. In Rochester, the Negroes ushered July 5th in with a booming cannon. 
In the forenoon, a procession moved through the principal streets to the public square, where a stage had been erected and seats set up for the speakers and audience. The guest of honor was the chief architect of the emancipation measure, Governor Tompkins himself. The featured speaker, too, was a symbolic figure, Austin A. Stewart, a runaway slave turned grocer. Let us, my countrymen, henceforth remember that we are men, he exhorted. At Cooperstown, the Negroes held a celebration at the Presbyterian Church. As at Rochester, a number of whites were present. Doubtless, many of them had come out of curiosity, but none left until leaving time. A few out-of-state observances were held. At New Haven, a meeting was held at the Temple Street African Church with white N.S. Jocelyn, the pastor's brother, as speaker. At Baltimore, the Friendship Society held a dinner with a long round of toasts which ended with a lifting of the glasses to our emancipated brethren in New York. A group of Negroes in Fredericksburg, Virginia, also sat down to a celebration dinner, opening with a song, Hail Columbia, Happy Land, and closing with a toast, May the anchor now cast for freedom by the state of New York sink deeply in the breasts of our southern states. Of the slaves who were freed in New York on July 4, 1827, the woman who named herself Sojourner Truth was destined to be the most remarkable. An abolitionist and an advocate of women's rights, she remained a lifelong illiterate, but she made a deep impression by her rude eloquence and gaunt, commanding figure. With a hopeful heart and an unshakable confidence in ultimate justice and the goodness of God, she bore pity rather than bitterness toward the slaveholders. The annual observance of Emancipation Day in New York State lasted only three or four years. Negroes in New York City celebrated the day in 1828 and in 1831, and those in Troy observed it in 1829. Twenty-seven years later, the celebration was resurrected for a single time at Auburn's Sanford Hall, with a majority of whites in attendance. A cluster of leading Negroes took part, with J.W. Loguen presiding and the elderly Austin A. Stewart on the platform. Speaker Henry Highland Garnett, just returned from six years abroad, was followed by Frederick Douglass, who held forth for two hours. Lucretia Mott, longtime friend of the Negro and a woman's writer, also spoke without expecting equal time. But New York's Emancipation Day was no longer commemorated. It had never really captured the Negro's imagination inasmuch as it came at an unpropitious time. To Negroes, the 4th of July simply was not a day for poetry and song. They felt no warmth for it, a reaction that extended to anything held on July 5th. While other Americans were moved to patriotic demonstrations on the glorious 4th, the Negroes were moved to bitter reflection. Unlike most of their white compatriots, Negroes could hardly fail to note the disparity between the rhetoric and the reality, between their country's high professions of liberty and equality and the existence of slavery and the high wall of color. What to the slave is the 4th of July? was the title given by Frederick Douglass to one of his notable orations. A holiday based on the Declaration of Independence and its fine phrases was without savor to Negroes, who wondered why whites with good taste did not react similarly. 
The 4th of July moved William J. Watkins to retire from the exulting multitude, pensive and solitary, to contemplate the past and present as connected with our history in the land of our nativity. The Colored Convention of 1834 voted against holding any kind of celebration on July 4th and urged Negroes not to join in public rallies. In 1838, a Negro newspaper suggested that on July 4th, a large slave whip should be unfurled in place of the stars and stripes. Another Negro weekly proclaimed the fourth day of July as the bleakest day of the year. We wish we could blot it from the calendar. Finally, Negroes were cool toward celebrating on July 4th because of the danger of assault by boisterous whites who had drunk too much. This apprehension had its role in making New York Negroes substitute July 5th for July 4th as State Emancipation Day. Colored people in other localities tended to make a similar substitution in their infrequent Independence Day celebrations. On account of the misfortune of our color, our 4th of July comes on the 5th, mourned Peter Osborne at a New Haven church on July 5th, 1832. By the mid-50s, this risk of personal attack when holding a July 4th celebration had lessened, but the Negroes' other reasons for withdrawal still remained. When, in 1859, the Banneker Institute decided to celebrate the 4th of July, the Anglo-African remarked that such an observance was something new in Philadelphia and at variance with the general practice among Negroes, coast to coast. Having no 4th of July, the black man did the next best thing. He celebrated August 1st. Did not British emancipation augur ill for American slavery? This was the note struck at the initial August 1st celebrations in America, held in 1834 at Philomathian Hall in New York. The three main speakers, Thomas L. Jennings, John Berrien, and Henry Williams, hailed the coming day when Britain's example would be followed by the United States. A meeting held by the New York Committee of Vigilance on August 1, 1837, similarly expressed the conviction that the disenthrallment of the West Indies was a sure sign of what was in store for America. Of the August 1st celebrations during the early years, the most important took place in 1838, it was then in the British West Indies that the apprentice system would come to an end and slaves would become unconditionally free. On July 31, 1838, the Negroes of Cincinnati held a watch night service, remaining mute and motionless for the final 15 minutes before midnight. At 12 o'clock, the silence was broken with a loud cheer, followed by song and prayer. The celebrants dispersed at 2 a.m., but were back eight hours later to resume. The festivities, including a total abstinence dinner, went on until early evening. Philadelphia witnessed a more formal observance, with clergyman William Douglas discoursing on the contagious influence of moral justice as it confronted wrong and outrage. Colored churches in Philadelphia remained open throughout the day, inviting all who would to pray. In New York, the colored people held a monster meeting at Tabernacle Hall at which Theodore S. Wright presided, joined on the platform by Thomas Van Rensselaer, William P. Johnson, Thomas Downing, Philip A. Bell, and Samuel Johnson. The occasion called for no less a personage than William Lloyd Garrison. Expansive on such a historic day for freedom, 
Garrison must needs praise his hosts. The fact that you are now observing this jubilee, that this meeting is under your direction, is another decisive proof that you regard liberty as a jewel above all price, and a state of slavery the worst of all conditions. On the eve of the 1838 observances by Negroes, the reformist sheet, the Emancipator, recommended that henceforth August 1st be celebrated by abolitionists universally. The suggestion did not go unheeded, although until 1842 there were few such observances in Massachusetts. But to no group did an August 1st mean more than to the Negroes. It was a day that should be remembered, observed, and consecrated by every colored man, wrote Samuel E. Cornish. At an August 1st meeting of the New England Freedom Association, held at Boston's Chardon Street Chapel in 1843, J.C. Beeman asserted that white people could not quite celebrate the day like Negroes. Another speaker, S.R. Alexander, said that he had advised his nine-year-old Hannibal to swear this day eternal enmity against slavery, and he exhorted other parents to follow his example. August 1st became the Negro's 4th of July and his celebration of the national holiday. Street parades with brass bands and carriages were common to both. On August 1st celebrations, the banners borne in the parades often depicted a slave with his fetters broken, his arms outstretched, and his face upward-looking. Often the parades included military companies. A New Bedford celebration in 1852 featured a company of cadets from New York. Three years later, the New Bedford observance boasted the presence of the National Guards of Providence plus their own Union cadets. On August 1, 1858, the New Bedford Blues, accompanied by a brass band from Bridgewater, marched to the depot to receive the Liberty Guards of Boston, sporting 25 muskets and accompanied by the Malden Brass Band. A Boston celebration in 1859 included the local Liberty Guards, the New Bedford Blues, and the National Guards of Providence. Despite the bands and the marching, an August 1st celebration was much lower in decibel count than a Fourth of July affair with its firecrackers and other noisemakers. Although nighttime programs in town were part of many August 1st agendas, the daytime activities were the most popular by far. The site of the latter was generally a shady grove accessible by railroad at excursion rates. In the center of the grove, a large stand had been erected for the chaplain, speaker, and musicians. The tables, laden with chicken and ham, were roped off until mealtime. Such a pastoral setting made for a tranquil afternoon. Since all beverages other than pure and cold water were contrary to regulations, there were likely to be fewer fistfights than at a Fourth of July affair. An August 1st celebration at Christiana in Pennsylvania in 1858 was described by William Wells Brown as all peaceable and quiet, not a drunken person on the grounds, even though the attendance ran to 2,000, the largest single gathering of Negroes Brown had ever seen. An August 1st observance was likely to be well attended, in part because it might draw from several communities. A celebration at Dayton in 1854 brought ten carloads from Cincinnati, plus contingents from Xenia, Hamilton, Troy, and Piqua. For the celebration at Galesburg, Illinois in 1857, groups of Negroes came from four towns, 
Quincy, Monmouth, Kewanee, and Burlington, and two counties, Coles and Edgar. An August 1st held at Marshall's Grove on Staten Island in 1856 brought together Negroes from New York, Brooklyn, and Williamsburg. Of the 7,000 attending the celebration at a New Bedford Grove in 1855, some 500 came from Providence and 250 from Boston. The group planning the observance at New Bedford in 1858 sent out an invitation through Secretary John Freedom to Negroes throughout Massachusetts. In Providence, Rhode Island, the seven Negro societies, whether benevolent, cultural, or reformist, all joined forces in celebrating August 1st. The attendance at Negro-run August 1st celebrations was invariably swollen by the presence of whites. Negroes generally sent out blanket invitations. In announcing their observance in 1854, the Negroes of Dayton, Ohio, courted the attendance of the citizens of every state, county, city, town, village, and settlement. In sending out such a general invitation, it was sometimes necessary to add a footnote asking that everyone bring his own refreshments. Whites were more receptive to an August 1st affair than any other kind conducted by Negroes. An observance at Harrisburg, Ohio, in 1849 drew an interracial crowd of 2,000, the largest ever seen in the village. One quarter of the celebrators of an August 1st at Morris Grove, Brooklyn, in 1855 were whites, many of them good-looking young women. Presumably, they were the daughters of abolitionists, mused a reporter from the New York Times, inasmuch as the latter had homely wives but pretty daughters. At the Brooklyn Affair, Sidney H. Gay presided, and J. Miller McKim and Garrison were among the speakers. Whites like these were occasionally scheduled as speakers at Negro-planned August 1sts. At a morning service at a church in Newark in 1839, Charles G. Finney shared the speaker's platform with his colored fellow clergymen, James W. C. Pennington and Samuel Ringgold Ward. At Cleveland in 1853, the featured speaker was James A. Thome, who in 1837 had spent six months in the British West Indies assessing the results of emancipation. At New Bedford in 1858, one of the guest speakers was the Reverend Henry Bleeby of Barbados, who had been in Jamaica when slavery came to an end. I saw the monster die, he related. When New Bedford Negroes held their annual parade on August 1st, they usually halted at the home of Mayor Rodney French, a trusted friend. In accounting for the popularity of an August 1st picnic, the role of relaxation must not be overlooked. The advance publicity for a celebration at Dayton, for example, came right to the point. Every provision will be made to make the day one of pleasure as well as productive of good. Often the speeches were followed by dancing under the spreading trees, at the San Francisco observance in 1855, dancing was not on the program, but seemed to be the high point for many. With a majority of colored people in San Francisco, dancing is the acme of human happiness, wrote the local correspondent of a reformist weekly. And August 1st was a family affair, and hence there were aerial cars and other amusements for those children who were not encircling the vendors of watermelon and ice cream. But to most adults, the pleasurable features were a concomitant to their seriousness of purpose rather than a substitute for it. Many observances had a distinctly religious tone.
in-town affairs were generally held in churches, with ministers prominent in the proceedings. At Troy in 1839, Daniel A. Payne spoke at the Bethel Free Church in the morning and the Liberty Street Presbyterian Church in the evening. At each service, Payne read original odes in commemoration of the day, a typical stanza running thus. Ransomed islands, lift your voices louder than the roaring sea. While your bounding heart rejoices, praise the God of liberty. In New York City, on the same August 1st, a morning service of prayer was held at Theodore S. Wright's Presbyterian Church, followed in the evening by a concert of sacred music. In 1854, the Indiana District Conference of the AME Church ordered each minister to deliver a West Indian Emancipation Sermon or lecture during the first week of August in 1855. But whether in city churches led by clergymen or in country groves led by laymen, an August 1st celebration was characterized by an insistence that slavery must go. The speakers might be of tender age, such as those of the Yates Juvenile Anti-Slavery Society, meeting on August 1, 1839, at the Liberty Street Presbyterian Church in Troy. Or the speakers might be college students, such as sophomore George B. Vachon and freshman and former slave William P. Newman, appearing at the observance at Oberlin in 1842, one arranged by Negroes. The speaker might be a semi-literate recent runaway or a polished performer like the tall, well-proportioned J.B. Sanderson who could hold forth for an hour without a grammatical error. At an August 1st, a poet like James M. Whitfield might deliver an original ode or a toast might come from a figure in the professions such as David J. Peck, the first Negro to win an American medical degree. Whatever their background or calling, these participants struck a common note, and its refrain was echoed by the inscriptions on the banners that decorated the platform. Liberty, the birthright of all. Let the oppressed go free. Give us our rights. We ask for nothing more. Not all Negroes thought that August 1st was a day worthy of being celebrated. West Indian emancipation had been compensated emancipation, with the masters having received payment. Hence, to some critics, such emancipation was an admission that man could hold property in man. Moreover, ran the charges, West Indian emancipation was a given freedom. It was a boon conferred rather than a right seized. Let us seek some day in which some enslaved black man in our own land swelled beyond the measure of his chains and won liberty or death, exhorted J. McCune Smith. He would prefer the day when Denmark Vesey suffered gloriously in Charleston as head of an abortive rebellion, or when Nat Turner turned all Virginia pale with fright. Robert Hamilton, editor of the Anglo-African Weekly, shared Smith's point of view. The West Indies slaves had not liberated themselves, he wrote, and hence he would prefer to commemorate the kind of day which marked the downfall of slavery in Haiti or the birthday of Nat Turner. A white editor of a Columbus, Ohio paper expressed the hope that Negroes would soon have a better day to celebrate than August 1st in this land of life, liberty, and the pursuit of niggers. Negroes who celebrated August 1st could not refute these charges, nor did they try. But at their observances, they invariably invoked the future, 
certain that it would furnish a more glorious day to commemorate than was then on the calendar. At their August 1sts, they paid their respects to the past by reading aloud the Declaration of Independence and the West Indian Emancipation Act. But the speakers, even those who glorified pre-colonial Africa, placed great emphasis on the new day a-coming. Dissatisfied with the status quo, constant in their seeking for a change, Negroes did not believe that August 1st was destined to be their only freedom day for limitless years to come. These black brethren constitute an argument against American slavery which nothing can overthrow, wrote a British weekly in 1854. If these are not men, where shall they be found? For nearly 50 years, Negro reformers had been journeying to England in search of support. Paul Cuff had gone to London in 1811, seeking a grant of land for colonization in Africa. The well-known essayist Lee Hunt was impressed by his good countenance and manly presence, considering him an excellent specimen of what freedom and instruction can do for the outcasts of color. During his stay of four months, Cuff became personally acquainted with the great English abolitionist trio, Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, and Zachary Macaulay, dining with the last named. In their annual report, the directors of the African institution extolled Cuff and his crew for having attracted respect throughout Great Britain by the propriety of their deportment and the proficiency of their navigational skills. Three years after Cuff's unsuccessful quest, another New Englander, Prince Saunders, came to London and was soon moving in good society. Self-assured and of polished manners, he was presented to the king. John Quincy Adams, who attended a dinner to which Saunders had also been invited, believed that some people fated him because they mistook his Christian name for a title. But this was hardly likely in the case of Wilberforce, who helped him to obtain an appointment in Haiti. After 1830, with the advent of the new school abolitionists, the number of Negro American reformers journeying to the British Isles took a sharp increase. The first in point of time was Nathaniel Paul, who, after ten years as pastor of the Hamilton Street Baptist Church in Albany, had gone to the Wilberforce Settlement in Canada. This community, badly in need of funds, commissioned Paul to go to England. Armed with a letter of introduction from Sir John Colborne, Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, Paul sailed from New York on December 31, 1831. Paul's four-year sojourn across the Atlantic did not realize any money for the Wilberforce settlement, his expenses matching his collections. But he did much to advance the cause of abolition. He spoke before a select House of Commons committee that was considering the West India Emancipation Bill. He breakfasted twice with William Wilberforce, and his audiences averaged between 2,000 and 3,000. In his speeches, Paul stressed the importance of promoting religion and education among Negroes, but he never failed to attack the American Colonization Society or to give Uncle Sam due credit for his two million slaves. Paul was joined by Garrison in the summer of 1833, and together on July 13th, they journeyed to Playford Hall, Ipswich, for a visit with the aged and sightless Thomas Clarkson. During the four-hour interview, Paul described the attitude of Negroes to the American Colonization Society, 
a disclosure that seemed powerfully to agonize the mind of the venerable man, as Garrison reported it. Upon Garrison's return to America, Paul toured northern England and Scotland in company with John Scoble, later the secretary of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. In the summer of 1834, Robert Purvis came to England after facing the usual difficulties of a Negro trying to get a United States passport. In August, at the House of Commons, Purvis was presented to the great Irish patriot Daniel O'Connell. Mistaking Purvis for a white American, O'Connell hesitated to shake hands with him. Apprised by John Scoble of the identity of Purvis, O'Connell greeted him warmly, explaining that he never took the hand of an American without first knowing his stand on slavery and its ally, the American Colonization Society. A month later, armed with a letter of introduction from Garrison, Purvis paid a visit to Sir Thomas Fowle Buxton, parliamentary leader of the anti-slavery forces after 1824. Making a greater impression abroad than Paul or Purvis was their Negro successor in the British Isles, Charles Lennox Raymond. Although not imposing in physique, Raymond had proved to be one of abolition's most effective speakers. He did something for the colored man, wrote Cyrus M. Burley, removing any doubt as to his mental capacity. Chosen by the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1840 as one of its four official delegates to the First World Anti-Slavery Convention at London, Raymond's trip was financed by the Bangor Female Anti-Slavery Society, the Portland Sewing Circle, and the Newport Young Ladies Juvenile Anti-Slavery Society. Raymond did not take his seat, however. The London Convention voted against the seating of women delegates. As a result, Garrison, Raymond, and Nathaniel P. Rogers, in a dramatic gesture of protest, left for the gallery to join their fourth colleague, Lucretia Mott, and the other unseated women delegates from the United States. Raymond became a spectator rather than a participant, but during the sessions he and his colleagues were surrounded by admirers, almost to the point of holding court in the gallery. Lady Bryan, the Duchess of Sutherland, joined the self-exiled party and conversed freely with Raymond. After the convention held its final session, the American abolitionists remained for a day at Freemasons Hall to hold a meeting of their own. At this rump gathering, Raymond's speech won the loudest applause and the greatly impressed Charlotte Upshur, daughter of Zachary Macaulay, asked Mrs. Mott to brief her on the Negro orator. Raymond remained in the British Isles for 19 months, holding forth on slavery, colonization, temperance, and race prejudice. His schedule was crowded. During one stretch, he spoke 23 evenings out of 30. But a true reformer never complained of being overbooked, even though, as in the case of Raymond, his standard speech ran to two hours. Audiences of that day were inured to long addresses, but Raymond seems to have held their attention throughout. Buxton paid tribute to his platform effectiveness by seeking to enlist him as a lecturer against the slave trade. Raymond, like Purvis before him, formed the acquaintance of Daniel O'Connell, a name highly revered in Negro circles. A meeting of Negroes in New York in December 1832 at the Abyssinian Baptist Church had been devoted to honoring O'Connell, 
reading a portion of an address he had made at a meeting of the London Anti-Slavery Society earlier that year, and then adopted six laudatory resolutions to this uncompromising advocate of universal emancipation and the friend of the oppressed Africans and their descendants. It was O'Connell who, after the overthrow of slavery in the British West Indies, demanded that British abolitionists turn their attention to the United States. Remond met O'Connell in July 1840, while both were in London attending the annual meeting of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. At one of the sessions, Remond followed O'Connell on the program and opened his speech with a tribute to him. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now.